you would pray with me. Lord God, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity now to hear your word, to hear your truth. Father, we need your truth to handle the things that come at us in life, the unpredictable things. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us stand firm in the midst of our suffering and our trials, our difficulties, our griefs, our fears. Father, we cast ourselves upon you and ask you to teach us now. Instruct us, Lord, not with the words of men, but with your divine word. Father, we trust that you breathed out these very verses and that they can re-script the way we live. So give us ears to hear, Lord. Increase our faith this morning. Humble us and challenge us and even rebuke us if need be, but, but comfort us and encourage us with these words. Help me to speak of Christ faithfully and clearly this morning, Lord. May your church be built up. May we walk away encouraged. All of this for the glory of Christ. In his name, amen. If there's one question that pastors do not have an answer to, it's this question. What kind and what intensity and what duration of suffering will God ordain for your life? In mysterious providence, we don't know what will be, but God's word equips us for that very reality. Consider these two pastors who couldn't even answer that question for their own congregations, much less their own lives. They didn't know the suffering and the intensity that would happen to them until it came right upon them. We're thinking this morning of two bishops in the English Reformation, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They were appointed for execution to be burned at the stake under the reign of Queen Mary. It was her approval. These men, they had rejected papal authority. They'd rejected the Roman mass. Instead, they gave their allegiance wholeheartedly to the gospel, to the authority of the word, to scripture. And now they were on a death sentence. And Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, as she's known for all these deaths she would approve of, of reformers, she locked these men away in the Tower of London. Others were locked away with uh, Latimer and Ridley, men like Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. But they were locked away, and for 18 months, whatever camaraderie they had in that prison cell, their hopes were still up in the air. How's it going to turn out for them? Latimer was in his 70s. He was an older man. Ridley was in his 50s. Their martyrdom occurred on October 16, 1555. And from a view outside the tower window, Cranmer looked on at his brothers, at their fate. Ridley and Latimer were led to the stake. Ridley knelt down. He kissed the stake and he prayed. The smith took the iron chain and bound them at their waist, he and Latimer. They fastened them back to back at the stake. There was a small pouch of gunpowder that was hung around each of their necks, and there were piles of wood arranged around them. The younger Ridley said first to the older Latimer, God will either assuage the fury of these flames or give us the strength to abide in it. Moments later, as others looked on, the fire was lit. The older Latimer looked at Ridley. He took his turn to encourage his brother. He said to the younger Ridley, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Latimer died quickly. Uh, the smoke the moment it was lit, almost he died suddenly and quickly. But a slower death faced Ridley because of the bad positioning of the wood around him. And Ridley continued to cry out to the Lord. In much agony, he died too. Both were witnesses faithful unto death. 
both could have saved their lives by just renouncing their faith. Both entrusted their lives to their faithful creator. Both men loved God more than their own lives. And you may hear that story this morning. It's a true story. And you may think, I could never do something like that. How can we stand firm in the midst of of suffering as it seems these men did? How can we do that? And it might not be the fires that they had at a stake, a real burning with everyone watching. It might be that the slow burning fires of a, a health diagnosis, the test results that give this onset of burning from then on. It might be the burning and the searing sudden loss of losing a job. Or it might be that burning of you lost a loved one. Or somebody did something to you that was so wrong, it's created this suffering for you now. In all these situations, I want you, and I want myself even, to stand firm in suffering. But I don't want you to think up your own ideas of how to do that. I don't want you to just hear my own advice or your friend's advice. I want you to know what God specifically says to you to help you stand firm in your trials. And I praise the Lord that he's told us how to stand firm. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. This is where the instruction is found. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. We're going to go through the end of the chapter, verse 19. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. As you're turning there, I just want to say, this is good news. As tough as it is to get through that opening uh, situation of Latimer and Ridley dying as martyrs, this is good news. If you've ever questioned what are you supposed to do in the midst of your suffering, there's going to be answers right here. If you're a person who even this very moment thinks things are going okay, it's not too bad, life's going pretty great, I want to go ahead and warn you, you're especially vulnerable to being very surprised when a trial hits you. The first verse of our passage is going to get into that. Uh, Whether you're in a trial now, as people often say, you're either in one, coming out of one, or about to go in one. You hear people say that all the time. It's true. Uh, So take to heart what is said here and store it up. Uh, Let's let's hear God's word. Let's start in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's God's word. Well, the main idea of what Peter's saying there, if you wanted to pull out the essence, what he's saying, he's saying that God orchestrates fiery trials to both refine and prove our trust in him. We're meant to entrust our souls to him. Christians ought to have a right understanding of suffering through trials that informs and shapes how they respond. And Peter's giving a framework here that is so strong and so uh, weight-bearing, it can handle all the questions we throw at God or the situation when we suffer. In fact, the structure of his his passage here, uh, each part of his structure deals with a question. So there's four parts And there's four questions that we're going to walk through, but he structured this 
this passage into four different ways. He, at the beginning there, he gives two responses. Then he lays out two causes. He lays out two questions. And then he lays out one conclusion. But that sounds like a lot of stuff to handle in the midst of a sermon. So here it is. There's four questions we're going to ask that we're going to use to look at these parts. First question, in the midst of our suffering. First question, we wonder how to feel. We wonder how to feel. This is verses 12 and 13. We wonder how to feel. Second question, we wonder why it happens. This is verses 14, 15, and 16. We wonder why it happens. Thirdly, we wonder where it leads. We wonder where it leads. Where does our suffering lead? This is verses 17 and 18. And then the fourth question we want to ask this morning is, we wonder what to do. We wonder what to do in the midst of suffering. And that's in verse 19. Verse 19. So I pray the Lord would help us to stand firm. And the reason I keep saying that word, stand firm, is that's the whole purpose of this letter. At the end, in chapter 5, verse 12, Peter said, I've declared and exhorted to you, This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He's been given this theology of suffering to these early Christians. He's talked about their home life, their political challenges out in the world. He's talked about what people are going to say to them. And now things are almost at this crescendo of suffering. The theology is reaching this high point right here. But they still have questions. So that first question, let's, let's take that. We wonder how to feel in suffering. This is verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13 could be organized by, by two thoughts. There's a surprise and a strangeness that we might feel when suffering comes at us. Or there's a Christ-centered joy that can actually characterize our feelings. Let's read verse 12 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Pain is surprising, is it not? Pain is surprising even to the emotional depths that it'll take you, to the labyrinth of emotion it might leave you in, There's feelings of bitterness and depression and apathy, detachment. Even a hatred of God can flare up and result and linger and remain from undergoing a difficult, painful trial. But all of these polluted springs of response, they've got one source. They all flow out of an attitude of being surprised and shocked and thinking, this is so strange. And you get fixated on the strangeness of a thing. And it affects your feelings. The strangeness and the irrationality of of why the suffering hit you when it did. And in some measure, all of what Peter is writing here, the entire letter, it's been written to rid these sojourning Christians of their shock and astonishment at suffering. The panic and surprise that hardship brings, he's trying to dispel dispel that and get it out of the way. So why is it that these Christians would have been so shocked by suffering? Well, these Gentiles who had now become Christians, they'd never been the outsiders before of their culture. They'd never been the ones marginalized and pushed to the edge. They weren't accustomed to all the prejudice that their allegiance to Christ incited from their once friendly neighbors. These believers were at the very start of the spread of New Testament Christianity, that gospel message of what Christ did, and they were new believers themselves, having only recently become faith in Christ people. So it's natural that they might think, okay, if you give your life to God, that's going to make life easier, is it? Not? It's natural to think that if I give my life to God in repentance and faith, things should start going well for me. 
It should be easier. There should be less difficulty. Peter is writing to give them a dose of reality. Quite the reverse, Christian. Quite the reverse. The hard trials, yes, they might be surprising. They might seem incompatible with your faith, but remember what I've written to you, Christians. Peter tells them how marred the world is by sin. And he tells them not only should they um, not be surprised, but they should actually expect suffering. It's part of the Christian calling. In chapter 2, verse 21, he already told them, for to this you've been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you too might follow in his steps. Following this path is difficult, but it's expected in some measure. You don't have to be a Christian to agree that suffering is hard, and it's not really the first thing you sign up for. I like the definition that Mark Talbot gives. He said, suffering is something disrupting our life's peace, our pleasantness, to the point where we find that disruption disagreeable, and thus in some sense and to some degree, we want it to cease. And there can be different kinds of suffering. It can be mild or intense. It can be short or prolonged. But it's always fiery and unpleasant. Did you notice there the way Peter described the trial? The the adjective in front of it? Right there in verse 12, he said fiery. Why the fiery language? Well, it's useful to convey the idea of of what a, a trial feels like. If you're touched by trial. So this is the imagery of a a painful burning, a searing, an intense heat, a heat that even melts and consumes. So a fiery trial is a synonym for suffering. And even our good theology can't take away the pain of suffering. It still feels horrible, but it can't quench our joy. Did you see verse 13? Trials can't quench our joy. Verse 13 tells us that we can find joy and even should find joy by linking our pain and suffering with Christ. Our happiness might be singed away, but not our joy. You know what it's like to have something singed away immediately, right? I do. There's grilling, charcoal grilling. Somebody know what that is? A lot of us today use gas grills, but... There's that lost art of charcoal grilling. Sometimes the grill will get so hot, I'll be outside grilling, and I'll pull the lid off, and a flame will will lick up, so to speak, and singe the hair off my hand and my knuckles and my wrist. In a moment, before I even realize it, the, the hair is just singed off. That's what a trial does to you with your happiness, does it not? The happiness is gone. It, it's evaporated so quickly And you find that all of your reactions in the trial are not coming from happiness. But I want to remind you, Christian, even if that can be seared away, the joy that's deeper cannot be touched. That's what verse 13 tells us. Rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Jesus knew suffering. Jesus knew pain. And he shares fellowship with us even in our pain. Two, two reasons we can have joy in the midst of our trials. One, suffering is a test. It said it there. It's a test that comes upon us right there in verse 12. It refines us. James chapter 1 verse 2 told us already in the New Testament, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So it changes our character. It helps sanctify us. So we could, A, rejoice at the refining nature of the trial, or B, we could rejoice at the fact that Christ has fellowship with us in the midst of it. So even as it purges us and purifies us and refines us, we can rejoice. We know this is the case. Uh, Peter already said earlier in the letter, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, is tested by fire. So we rejoice in that refining for what it's producing. And we rejoice with Christ. I like how the Apostle Paul 
said in Philippians 3.10, Paul is longing to share in Christ's sufferings. He said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Brothers and sisters, all the mature Christians who have ever lived have been at a mature state because they found the art, not so much the science, but the art of connecting their suffering and their pain to Christ. And they've actually had fellowship with Christ in the midst of their trials. So we could apply this to our own lives this morning. What is it that blocks your joy when you suffer? Is it that shock and that fixation on the strangeness of it? Push that aside and and look to Christ. We could apply it in another way too and ask ourselves, is there any earthly relationship, any possession that you own, anything in this world, including yourself, including your own body, that you believe is immune to the damaging effects of suffering? Do you believe that there's some kind of crevice tucked away or some corner that you can protect, that you can keep it from suffering? We live in a fallen world. There's sin within. There's sin without. Everything in this world is liable to be touched by sin, to be touched by trial, to be touched by pain. I wonder if we're often surprised because trials come to that one thing in life that we thought, This isn't going to be touched by damaging effects. And if God can take away even the things that that are painful to be taken away from us, how much then does he care about our sanctification? If we can really have fellowship with Christ in our sufferings, and you, you truly believe that, then consider that it shouldn't be surprising that God would bring a trial into your life to give you intimacy with Christ. So in summary, how should we feel? We wonder how to feel. Verses 12 and 13 tell us, Christian, be less surprised. Don't be surprised when trial comes. Yes, it's human nature to to drop your your jaw and gasp and be shocked in a sense when, when some news hits. But Peter is saying, don't stay there. You might have some initial awe, but then the Christian quickly moves out of that and they see the joy in the trial. They look for the joy. They search for it so that they might know Christ more. And one other thing we could do with this thought before we leave it is apply it to the life of your family and your congregation. When you have dinner with one another, when you have lunch, when you have a meal, if you're just riding in the car together, ask one another, what fiery trials has God brought into your life? And how has it refined you and brought you joy with Christ? Don't make the conversation about how surprising it was. That's the temptation. Make it about the refining nature of the trial. But secondly, not only do we wonder how to feel, we wonder why it happens. This is verses 14, 15, and 16. So within this section here, Peter lays out a Christian causality and even a sinful causality to our suffering. Look at verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Did you notice the two types of suffering there? So one is by a particular name that you bear, the name of Christ or Christian. And the other there in verse 15 is a direct consequence of sin. Peter wants these Christians, these sojourners, to evaluate why their suffering is brought about. Is it their association with the gospel? Or is it because they're disobeying God in some way by doing sin. The former is not something to be ashamed of. The name of Christ is a magnet for suffering in this hostile world. The world that's in rebellion against God 
and against his very name will then be against you if you adopt the name of Christ and you're in his family. So this is the ignition point for the fiery trials. Verse 14 shows one type of ignition where the flame, the match is struck. Verse 14 depicts there the insult, the reviling, the disgrace and reproach that's brought on by the name of Christ. If you're united to Christ's name, verse 14 is likely to happen to you. It's nothing to be ashamed of, though. Verse 16 makes that clear. The very name that we are maligned for is the name that we glorify God in. Peter knew this well. In Acts 5, 40-41, we're told that when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. That was the issue. Do not speak in the name of Jesus. Their association with his name brought about the suffering. And then they let them go. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So Peter has experienced what he's writing about, and he's preparing them that the same thing awaits them. And over and over again in this letter, he's been exposing how they would be likely treated by those who don't know the Lord. You don't have to turn there, but just hear this. Chapter 2, verse 4. He said, Christ is a living stone rejected by men. Chapter 2, verse 12. He said, the Gentiles will speak against you as evildoers. In chapter 2, verse 15. He said that foolish people who are ignorant speak against you. Chapter 3, verse 9, he said, reviling is going to happen to you, but don't revile in return. Chapter 3, verse 15, he said, people will question the reasons for the hope that you have. And they're not questioning you politely. They're attacking you with their questions. So be gentle. Respond in a respectful way, giving an answer, always prepared for the hope that you have. Then in chapter 4, verse 4, he said the Gentiles are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and so they malign you. He has made it abundantly clear that if you are connected in any way to the name of Christ, even if somebody hypocritically claims to be a Christian and they they don't love God, anyone connected to the name of Christ is essentially bringing suffering upon their life at some point. And he wants them to be prepared. And he says there, I love this, in these verses, he says in verse 14, the Spirit of God rests upon people who suffer for the name. He says they can glorify God because the Holy Spirit rests upon them. So this means that, again, persecution for the name of Christ actually invites a nearness of God. His his spirit rests upon the believer, giving power and comfort and strength. It's a means of blessing, despite what those on the outside would see. So when he says there, spirit of glory and spirit of God, he's not talking about two different spirits. It's the same spirit. These are just different angles of looking at it. The spirit of glory, it's a glorious spirit, but it's actually God himself resting upon you. Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And it was speaking of the Messiah. God's Spirit rested upon the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus Christ. And it rests upon those who rely upon the Messiah, Christ, even in the worst of times. So if we wonder why is suffering happening, we need to evaluate. Is this happening because of Christ's namesake? If it is, don't be ashamed. Don't beat yourself up. Expect it. Trust that his spirit is comforting you. But we have to notice also the non-Christian, the sinful causality. Did you see verse 15? This is another type of causality for our trials and suffering. If we wonder why we're suffering and we trace it back to sin, we have a problem. Look at verse 15. It says there, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. So the list of those sins move from a a major serious 
outward vice, all the way down to something that many don't even recognize as sin, meddling. So murder to meddling. And because I think most of you listening aren't going to struggle with that murder piece as much, I want to stay on meddling for a second. I want to be very clear, what is meddling? To meddle is to be too nosy. Some of its close cousins would be gossip and busybody. This is the, the poking your nose where you shouldn't. To meddle is it's describing a person who seeks too much interest in the situations and relationships involving others around them. It's putting your hands or your eyes or your ears right up into another's business, their situation, even your questions and opinions, which you would label as advice, and you put it towards that person, your neighbor even, and you're interfering in someone else's concerns. It goes against the grain of treat others the way you want to be treated. So curiosity and pride form this deadly mix of of meddling. They want to see how something goes. And here in verse 15, Peter is warning against all types of sins, even ones like meddling. These Christians could have been tempted to murder when the suffering was its most intense. They could have thought, I'm going to be a zealot. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to lash out. And I'm going to violently attack those who would try to harm us as Christians. That would have been a real temptation. But Peter moves even into the social interactions they have, and and he tells them, don't be a meddler. If you're suffering because of that, you don't need to comfort yourself that God's Spirit is with you and you're sharing in Christ's sufferings because people don't think well of you. People might not think well of you because you're meddling. He said already in the letter, chapter 2, verse 20, what credit is it if you sin and you're beaten for it and you endure? Chapter 2, verse 20. So he's already told them, you need to evaluate why your suffering is happening. See if you've directly sinned and caused it, or see if it's because you're a Christian. And we might apply this to our own lives by thinking about that as a spectrum for us. On the one hand, suffering because of sin. On the other, the causality is Christian. But you may be thinking, you might be wondering, well, what about, I just got diagnosed with cancer, or this person just died in my life. I just got fired from my job, and it had nothing to do with me being a Christian. Well, that's why verse 16 helps us. Verse 16 has implications, yes, primarily for direct Christian persecution, but it says in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, so primarily because you're a believer of Christ, but all these other forms of trial that hit you, you still need to glorify God in that name, as verse 16 says. The only kind of suffering that you encounter that you should feel ashamed about is your own sin. So if it's some mistake you made, if it's some news that's come at you, you didn't directly sin to make it happen, don't be ashamed. Glorify God in that name. But there's a third question. We wonder how to feel. We wonder where this came from. We also wonder, where does this lead to? Where does my suffering lead? This is verses 17 and 18. Within this section, he deals with the timing the scope, and also the severity of suffering, namely on the unbeliever. Verse 17, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So suffering in this life raises a question mark that's often not answered Till the final judgment. These two verses here, did you see that? They contain two what will be questions. Each question is a what will be, what will become. Verse 18 is kind of set off in italics in most Bibles because this is a, an echo directly from Proverbs 11.31. And even in verse 17, 
we see something of this what will be question. The question is preceded by those words of time and beginning. Peter's saying that the starting place of God's fiery judgment is now. It's the house of God. It's a direct reference to chapter 2, verse 5, when he already spoke of the household of God, the spiritual house made up of living stones. So fiery trials hit us even now as Christians, even the church of God as a whole, and it has a purging or cleansing effect on God's house, revealing those who are genuine and those who are imposters. Organized persecution of Christians was right around the corner, even if Peter didn't know the extent of it. And suffering would begin at the household of God. But his main intention there is to say that question, what will be? What will be the outcome? Those who don't obey the gospel. What Peter means by this, he's saying if God's holy fire is so intense that it purifies and proves and tries the ones he loves, how much greater will the fire of wrath be on those who rebel against his gospel? The terms sinner and ungodly there in verse 18 are in parallel with this idea of not believing and not obeying. People do not obey the gospel because they refuse to believe, because they love unrighteousness. Even though this is a question that's not answered, the New Testament tells us, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. If you are not a follower of Christ, if you just happen to be here, you happen to be listening somehow, even if you think you're a Christian because you show up to church, or you associate with Christians? Did you see what this verse said? Verse 17, the way it ended. It didn't say, do you intellectually believe that Christ lived, died, and rose again? Some kind of factual knowledge. It didn't say that. It didn't say, do you try to do more good than bad in life? It says, those who do not obey the gospel, That's the measure. That's the fruit. Obeying the gospel of God doesn't earn us a place with God, but it's the fruit of that that root of faith and trust and repentance. So I would invite you today to let that be a, a lens to evaluate your life. Even for you, Christians, evaluate. Are you obeying the gospel of God? Your good works that are not done in, in obedience to the Lord are going to be burned up. Verses 17 and 18 are are moving us forward to this holy God full of raging fire. The Christian will escape through the fire and not be completely consumed and burned up. That's why it says there in verse 18, the righteous is scarcely saved. Not meaning that Christ's atonement is just barely strong enough or we're barely cleansed. But it's a word that means difficulty. In other words, it's hard. It's difficult to follow this path of salvation. And we also see the severity there in verse 18. Imagine what remains for those who face God. And it's not a a fire to refine them, it's a fire to punish them. Consider the kindness, but the severity also of God. Even in trials, God's kind to Christians. His fiery presence is not kind to the unbeliever in judgment. So if you don't know the Lord Christ, remember today that no matter how good your life is going with the absence of trials, or no matter how hard it is because of the the fiery pain that you feel, set those in light of the final judgment. You were created in God's image to love him, to use your trials to magnify him and trust him. 
You were created to reflect his character. But all of us have gone our own way. We've chosen to worship other things. We've chosen to to live our own life, making our autonomy, our choices of idols, our choices of loves, something even higher than God himself. And because God's good, he will punish that. He can't help but punish sin. The heat, the fire of his holiness, it's so hot, it just completely evaporates and pulverizes anything that can't withstand its heat. Think about an ice cube. If you had an oven in your house, it's ready, it's heated up, you're about to bake something, and you just threw an ice cube in there. You don't have to think, Hey, kids, let's do an experiment. Is the ice cube going to be there 10 minutes later? No. Why? Is it because the oven is so mean? No, the nature of the oven itself is so hot, something that comes in contact with it that can't handle the heat is destroyed. You can't say that God is mean and cruel because he punishes your sin. God's very excellent being, the core of who he is, is so holy, it's so hot, the, the light is, is unapproachable even. There's such light and heat with God in his essence. If you get near him and you can't handle the heat, you'll be obliterated. But here's the mysterious thing. The scriptures tell us those who are in hell those who cease to exist. God is the creator. Just like he created life, he can sustain it. So he can essentially allow someone to encounter his fiery wrath in hell forever as punishment for their sin, and they're not obliterated, and yet they suffer. This verse, verse 18 sets us on a trajectory to tremble at what it is like to come near the fiery holiness of God. And all throughout the Bible, God's presence is described as as fire, is it not? So, if we wonder, what does this lead to, our suffering? It all leads to God's holiness. We can apply this to our life. We can remember that even if somebody attacks you or abuses you or causes suffering, it's not you who caused it, it's someone else. Let this verse lead you to hope that everything is moving in this direction of God's holy presence. Don't give up hope. Trust that the end is coming and all things are going to be made right. I like how one Puritan pastor said, let us never give up. But in our thoughts, knit together the progress, the end, the middle, knit them all together so that we shall see ourselves in heaven out of reach of all enemies. So these enemies of sin and death and suffering even. But until that day comes, we need to know what to do. All things will be made right on the last day when we encounter this holy God. But what about now? So that's the fourth question. We wonder what to do. This is Everything's been driving to this point. Verse 19, here's the conclusion. We wonder what to do. We entrust our soul to the character and purpose of God. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So our actions in the midst of suffering should align with God's will, just as the suffering itself aligns with his will. And what we do and what they are to do, what Peter is calling them to do, is to let our our actions and attitudes flow out of a deep trust in the sovereignty of God. Because we can believe that he appoints suffering, that he orchestrates it in his will. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 17, he said it's better to suffer for doing good, and here's the key, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. These are are dark strokes on the canvas of our life, are they not? The suffering that comes according to his will. 
We don't like the color that he's painting with, but we have to wait till the picture is finished. It'll result in praise to Christ at the end. But why does God will suffering? Why does he will it? The answer is right there in verse 19. It's connected to what we do. Why he wills the suffering and what we do are a package deal. He wills it so that we might trust him more. Did you see that there? Entrusting our souls. Fiery trials burn away self-reliance. They burn away false beliefs that can't withstand the heat of reality. They burn away the idolatrous fat from our hearts and they melt prideful confidence. No one's immune from this. Not pastors, not the sweet person in your family tree that you think they've never done anything wrong. No one's immune from this. Proof of that would be even the apostles, Paul and Timothy, the opening of 2 Corinthians. They say the affliction we experienced in Asia, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. They were in a fiery trial. And then they say this, indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Rely on God who raises the dead. So our reliance on self stops more and more as trials come more and more into our life. Just like gold is refined in fire and there's impurities and dross that need to be removed, there's only one way to do it, heat it up. If you pride yourself on that you're obedient and righteous, you don't see a lot of sin in your life, beware that that might mean a very intense, hot, painful trial is going to come to rid you of those impurities that you think are not there. But be encouraged, Christian. The trial is not meant to overwhelm you. Isaiah 43.2 tells us that the flame is not going to consume us. Your suffering is meant to highlight your trust in God. It's meant for you to display confidence in his sufficiency. So as we close here, we should notice that word in trust, verse 19, it's the idea of continually handing over something, placing something of value, putting it in the hands of someone else for proper safekeeping. It's a banking term. So you're going to give or commit something of value, deposit it safely to another that you trust. Peter is telling these scattered Christians, these believers, to give over and place their souls in the good, confident trust that God is taking care of them. He highlights two attributes. You have to see that. What two attributes did he highlight? Faithfulness and his creatorness. Faithfulness, meaning God is so good, you can trust him. He's faithful. He's never going to fail you. God will never fail you. He's faithful. And he's the creator. He's all powerful. There's not anything else more powerful than him in him that's going to somehow ruin his, his orchestrating of events. This entrusting of our souls is not a one-time thing. It's daily, even hourly. If you have trouble thinking about that idea, how, how can I trust a God who would bring pain to me? Well, I like how Richard Sibbs said it. He said, physicians, doctors, physicians, surgeons, though they put their patients to much pain, they will not destroy nature, but raise it up by degrees. Surgeons will lance and cut, but not dismember. Trust your faithful creator. Even the best doctors in the world understand it takes getting through pain to sometimes make somebody more healthy. But human doctors didn't even design the human body. God is your creator. He designed you. He created you. He knows how to refine you. You can trust him. Christ is calling us to walk the path that he walked. Chapter 2, verse 23, it said, When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This passage can handle your questions. God himself handles your questions. 
Take them to him and go to his word for insight. Let it shape you. We wonder how to feel. We wonder why this is happening to me. We wonder where this is all leading. We wonder what to do. God tells us. It doesn't take away the pain. but It tells you what to do in it. May we keep doing good as verse 19 ends. It says, while doing good. A trial is not an excuse to not keep doing good. Trials magnify our pain. They also magnify the good we do. Those two men, Latimer and Ridley, even in their trial, the good they did encouraging one another in their words was magnified. But this sermon is not about martyrs who were sinful and sometimes holy. This this sermon, your suffering, it's all about Christ, the only one who was sinless, the only one who deserved no suffering. He didn't have iron chains uh, around his waist. He had iron nails piercing him, nailing him to the cross. And when the fire of God's judgment was being poured out, engulfing him, his good words still echo, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And before his final breath, Jesus proves that he's living out verse 19 here. He kept entrusting himself rightly. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after this, he breathed his last. May we do the same. Let's pray. Lord God, we we praise you for the, the mystery of your providence, the purpose of your trials, Lord, we confess that so often we are surprised. We are trapped in speculation and shock and panic. Help us, Lord, to be those who stand firm, who find fellowship with you in our pains. Father, help us to entrust our souls continually, constantly giving ourselves over to your trust and care. And help us as a church to do that for one another. We thank you for your word. Help us now to live it out. For the glory of Christ, his name we pray.